Hello and welcome to the Politics Home podcast with me, Matt Honeycomb-Foster. Um, we are usually unstoppably chirpy on this podcast, but there is a pretty bitter mood in Westminster as we sit down to record this today. It's already been a hell of a week, a heated Labour conference, the Prime Minister being found to have broken the law when he suspended Parliament, and some of the ugliest scenes in the Commons that any of us here can remember. But there are reasons to be cheerful as well, not least that one of my guests this week is celebrating his birthday today. Many happy returns to Adam Payne, who is Senior Political Reporter at Business Insider. Welcome to the pod, Adam. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for the birthday wishes. Uh, I do feel about 95 years old, having what's, given what's happened in the last few months by I'm actually turning 26 somehow. Well, you're, not, you're not looking in your 90s, Adam, I've got to say, you know. Oh, thank you very much. Somewhere, 40s, 50s. Somewhere closer but. to my 60s. <laughs> um, and also joining us is a Politics Home veteran, actually, uh, who has since gone on to far greater things. Uh, not least of all today, today in fact, becoming the digital political editor at The Sun, Natasha Clark. Welcome, Tash. Thank you so much for having me. Feeling good? Feeling ready? Yep, feeling ready as I'll ever be. Um, 36 days to go till Brexit, guys. Absolutely, we're, we're counting them down. Um, it is fair to say that Parliament is not a very happy place at the minute. It's been hastily reconvened after that mammoth Supreme Court ruling, which we'll get stuck into in a moment. But first, um, let's talk about the issue that everyone in SW1 has some pretty strong opinions on today. The the tone of yesterday's debate in Parliament, where essentially the Prime Minister was accused of dismissing threats that MPs face to their safety, and triggered an angry response when he said the the way to honour Joe Cox, who was killed in 2016, was to get Brexit done. Guys, you've both spent a lot of time in in Westminster. Perhaps start with you, Adam. What what did you make of it yesterday? It was, there have been um, some very chaotic scenes in Parliament the last year or so, and some pretty grim nights as well. Uh, I think last night was probably the lowest I've felt were watching something unfold in the House of Commons. I guess for me now, now the dust has settled slightly, not completely settled, mm-hmm. um, as, as we've seen kind of some of the response, uh, some of the exchanges even today have been quite heated. Um, just the, I guess the l- lack of self-reflection among everyone is really disappointing um, for a lot of MPs and just people on Twitter it just seemed that what happened last night they just took that and then used it to strengthen the position they already had there wasn't a lot of self-reflection and kind of the whataboutery as well um, you know um, I personally felt what the Prime Minister said was pretty awful um, uh, but the when you have responses of well, what about when X person did this or Y person did that? So it doesn't. To me, what's troubling is that as a as a community of people, as I don't know, MPs, journalists, whatever, we don't really seem to be learning anything and making any type of progress. To um, you know, people often say we need to you know improve the atmosphere in this place and bring people together. And obviously, I completely agree. But I just don't see any evidence that that is is going. Um, to happen soon and I suspect that we're going to have some more pretty heated um, exchanges in the House of Commons today and and going forward. Tash, um, how did you feel about what we what we saw unfold last night? I think Boris, Boris's words were were careless. He he didn't show any sort of humility or understanding or respect to what the MPs on the other side of the House were saying to him. It's all part of this plan 
that Number 10 seemed to uh, have, have got since Boris came into power to completely ramp up the rhetoric around Brexit. And we're seeing it more and more and more, Number 10 sources being even more bolder in their language, uh, being even more you know, sort of stepping up their attacks on Labour, stepping up their attacks on, you know, other MPs in the House. And we are, we've got to this point where it's just boiling point now, isn't it? It's just got to a point where everybody's tensions are spilling over, everybody is unhappy, everybody is angry and upset, frustrated and extremely tired with the Brexit mess. And we just saw that completely unfold. Um, but Boris, you know, didn't, didn't uh, address that mood in the House last night. I think that was his problem. You know, he's he's perfectly right to sort of want to defend how he how he is running the government, but he didn't give a, a chance to to sort of respond to what these MPs are saying, and, and especially about the, the 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 use of language in in politics, which has has been ramped up for years now. One of the phrases that seems to have angered people most that the prime minister has repeatedly used is this term "surrender bill." Now, this is the term that Downing Street's adopted for the law passed by. Um, MPs, which requires him to request a Brexit extension if he, he doesn't get a deal by um, mid-October. Um, number 10 were making it pretty clear today that they they believe it's it's fair still to call it a surrender bill. They've set out their arguments for that. Um, Adam, do you think we'll see any kind of toning down of the, the rhetoric here, or, or I think <laughs> are they going to kind of double down on this one? I don't think so. Um, obviously, the Prime Minister addressed Conservative MPs at the 1922 meeting today and his message was look the reason Labour MPs really don't want me to use this um, this word is because it, it's having cut through and and people around the country are seeing this word hearing this word so I, I haven't seen any evidence they're going to uh, double down and and uh, as, as Natasha said um, number 10 has a clear strategy of look when we go into this election um, Brexit probably won't have been delivered so we want to frame it along the lines of look uh, Boris is on your side. It's Boris and the people versus the MPs, the judges, the whoever else is in in that uh, Remainer clique. So I know I don't think they are going to uh, going to tone it down. Um, Ed Miliband pointed out in the House of Commons uh, before we came here to record this podcast that it does hark back to the language of war. You know that we are in we're in battle with Europe, and you know, and we are waving our white mm-hmm. flag. And I, I I think it is really. I don't think we should be using this language, particularly when, you know, I think the, the programme, we're meant to be, you know, signing a, a close and, and a close relationship with our European friends and partners. This, isn't, this language doesn't really um, suggest that. So I, I, I suspect um, we are not going to see Downing Street torn down that language. In fact, as, as Tasha says, some of the um, sources coming, their quotes, sorry, coming from Downing Street sources don't really point to a toning down of language, I think the Prime Minister is going to continue using surrender and and uh, similar language. One of the things that MPs raised in the chamber was last night was this very real feeling that they feel under attack, that they don't feel safe anymore. Is that is that reflected in the conversations you have with with people across the Commons that, that death threats and and abuse are just becoming part of the life of being an MP now? Absolutely, it's it's very much normal part of being an MP is is to get threats uh, and sadly death threats. Um, you know, listening to the conversations in the House last night, um, Jo Swinson uh, saying that she even had a, a threat against her child, which is is actually quite unbelievable when you sort of step back and and think about what that means. Uh, we saw the Labour MP Rosie Duffield. Um, uh, you know, someone went to to jail for threats against her for plotting to murder her. 
Um, that is absolutely unbelievable. And I remember um, very clearly where I was when, when Joe Cox was murdered, as I'm sure most journalists uh, mm. and MPs and everybody does. Uh, and I'd met her the week before, and she was the most lovely woman. We, we must never forget that, some, that an MP was murdered trying to do her job. Um, but yes, it's, it's now that the political situation now has changed where that has become a more normal thing. People have forgotten exactly uh, what happened with Joe and forget, forgot that that never used to be a normal thing. You know, and it's it's not even just on the left; it's on the right too. MPs of all political colours and persuasions get death threats uh, for for supporting Brexit, for not supporting Brexit. Uh, it, it's it's turned in it's turned our country into a very different place than it, than it was before the referendum. Let's talk a little bit about the reasons Parliament came back yesterday, and and you know perhaps the reason why the debate got as heated as it did. Um, there was an incredible ruling from the the Supreme Court that found. Um, Boris Johnson's decision to prorogue Parliament, to shut down Parliament for five weeks, was unlawful. Adam, can you kind of talk us through what the Supreme Court actually found? Yes, it was a stunning moment, wasn't it? Uh, I guess one of the very few positive things to kind of come out of this era we're in is that politics is now quite a sexy thing on television. Uh, Everyone seems to be watching uh, politics and everyone was glued to that, that Supreme Court ruling. I think um, based on the consensus among kind of legal experts um, on, that I saw was that the fact it was a unanimous ruling came as a surprise. I think um, people were predicting the government lose, but when it came through as 11-0, that was a kind of a wow moment and people were generally shocked. The courts, uh, when I see Lady Hale, the president of the court, delivered her verdict. To boil it down, I, I think the one quote I, I read in, in the ruling was that there was no reason, let alone a good reason, to shut down Parliament for this length of time. So what the Supreme Court found was that um, there was no legitimate, defensible reason to suspend Parliament for five weeks, um, especially uh, in the context that you know we are in the midst of a political national crisis. And I think the, the fact it was a unanimous ruling was devastating for the government. Some of the language Lady Hill used um, in her verdict, she said it had extreme effects on parliamentary dem- democracy, I, I think she said. So I don't think anyone, even the most opt- optimistic people who were part of the legal battle against the government, people around Gina Miller, for example, were realistically expecting um, an, an 11 no result. So it was, it was I, th- I thought it was devastating for the government, but as we've seen in Downing Street, it's kind of business as usual. Yeah, Tash, as Adam said, it was you know devastating unanimous ruling. Is there anything in that ruling that Number Ten can point to and, and say, well, actually, uh, <laughs> this this wasn't so bad for us, or, or you know, really, are they clutching at straws with that one? Uh, slightly clutching at straws if they were to sort of turn around and say this is an amazing judgment for for Boris Johnson. Um, yeah, it completely uh, stunned, uh, I think, everybody in, in Westminster. I'm sure, including some in, in Number Ten, uh, who were uh, with the Prime Minister in New York at the time. Uh, not ideal to be. Um, <laughs> Uh, sort of uh, holed up in a hotel room, I'm sure, watching the judgment come in at five o'clock in the morning. Um, However, there were some sort of glimmers of hope for for number 10. Um, Boris has said that he does still want to have a Queen's speech. Uh, We don't sort of at the moment have any clarity on exactly when that might be. But the Supreme Court ruling did not say that it's not that it's, you know, that it's not okay to ever shut down Parliament. They did not say that. 
uh, they basically just had a had you know a problem with the legal advice that 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 happened and the the, the discussions that 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 the prime minister had with the queen that was all sort of put in doubt but they didn't say that they can't do it again so i think that's what we sort of uh, are, are all looking for next is whether boris might actually try to shut down parliament again he's, he said he wants a queen's speech in order for him to do that he has to pro parliament and this has obviously increased calls for the prime minister to step down certainly from the from opposition mps but we're in the strange situation of uh, the opposition really wanting to get rid of the prime minister but of course not doing anything to to trigger an election, um, is there any sign we we might get to an election soon, or, or is this deadlock going to continue for a while? Do you think? Uh, well, yesterday in the Commons, Boris tried his very best to try yet again to force uh, an election. He decided not to push an election vote for the third time, probably because he thought, "Oh, I'm probably going to lose this one, guys. I think I'm uh, I'm not going to bother." Um, but he did sort of throw down the gauntlet to MPs, saying, "If you put a vote of no confidence in me tomorrow, I will let you have that." Um, you know, if he loses a vote of no confidence and a government can't be formed in 14 days, then a, an election is automatically called. Um, but yeah, as you say, we're in a bit of a paralysis at the moment. Um, MPs don't want to force an election until they are sure that Boris will have to go to the EU to seek another extension. Uh, and at the moment, it's still very up in the air about whether he will have to. Number 10 have said he will obey the law, uh, but Number 10 have also said we will not be seeking another delay. And it's a bit unclear exactly what, what their plan is right now. They're obviously not going to tell us, uh, any journalists or any MPs, the plan because they don't want to play into uh, the other MPs' hands. Adam, is there a sense in which, despite this being, as you say, a devastating ruling um, for the PM, that this might play quite well with his supporters? I think that's, that's an interesting question because I guess up to now, up until this week, the an opinion you hear a lot is that, okay, you know, Johnson, he is a maverick, he, he is unconventional, but this will actually go um, down quite well with the sort of people he's hoping to attract at the next election, i.e. leave voters in those Tory Labour marginals who just want Brexit done and, and really respect a Prime Minister who's willing to go out his way to get it. However, what we've seen this week in which the Supreme Court reached the decision it did, um, how that decision involves the Queen, and last night how the Prime Minister conducted himself at the dispatch box. I'm personally not convinced that people's target voters are going to be impressed in the same way. And actually, um, some polling has come out. I'm just trying to have written it down here. So um, some polling has come out recently for example, the YouGov poll for the Times found that his competence rating has decreased by 8% in the last two weeks. And in a Servation poll for the Mail, almost two-thirds of people said that he should apologise to the Queen. And really interestingly, more than half of Tory voters uh, said that he should resign. So I'm, I completely get that some of the stuff he's done up until this week may well play well with people who is trying to trying to attract but I do think his behaviour this week and the court's decision and and what it means for his relationship or what he may or may not have said to the Queen is, is damaging for him and I was actually speaking to a Tory staffer this morning before coming on the podcast and she uh, told me that um, their MP <clears throat> was speaking to constitu- constituents in a very Brexity parts of their seats, and even they they were expressing concern with what the prime minister has done this week. I think there's definitely a feeling of, well, hold on a minute. I mean, we want Brexit, but we're not sure if we're completely comfortable with you know with what's happening this week. So I think it'll be interesting to see. Also, I just mentioned these couple of polls. I'll be interested to see 
what other polls in the next few days and weeks show us because I'm not completely convinced I've been wrong I've been wrong before and I'll be wrong again but I'm not completely convinced that what the Prime Minister has done this week will be uh, will receive a fantastic reception from the public No, another question of course is that the Conservatives are um, you know traditionally the party of institutions of uh, law and order of, of, of keeping things very much the same as they've always been and this was a, a pretty um, revolutionary act from the Prime Minister um, Kevin Schofield, poll home editor, sat down with uh, James Cleverly, he, who is the chairman of the Conservative Party, to ask him whether this had damaged the Conservatives. You know, uh, no point pretending that, um, that I was happy about it. I thought the, the English Appeal Court was right. The Supreme Court didn't. Um, and so um, we absolutely respect the judgment. We respect the judges and the judgment, and we have to deal with it. Um, and that's the you know, and that's the way it, that's the way it works. I mean, public decisions, public decisions by public bodies and actions of public bodies um, get scrutinised by the court. It happens at all kinds of levels. You know, you get you get JRs at, at local council, central government. It is it is unusual to have it this high profile mm. at this level, but it, it is actually not. Um, it is not as unusual as, as it might be perceived, um, and you deal with it. I mean, that's that's what that's what you do, and we are dealing with it. Hence, you know, the house is uh, you know, going to be sitting this week, um, and the you know the, the the broader priorities of the government remain unchanged, which is to deliver Brexit as was promised by everybody involved in the. Uh, the referendum campaign. Both sides of the referendum campaign said that they would honour the referendum result. Mm-hmm. Um, seemingly, you know, the Conservative Party is the only party that took that commitment seriously, and so we are looking to deliver what everybody promised, which is to honour the outcome of the referendum. But also, we are not going to be distracted from delivering the other stuff, you know, which is about you know getting those twenty thousand know, extra police officers recruited and deployed money into the NHS, getting to the front line of the NHS, you know, upping teachers' starting salaries, getting money into the front line of schools. So, you know, this has happened. It's not what we wanted, but we will deal with it um, and we will remain focused on, on, on delivering the, the promises that we've made. I mean, you mentioned the domestic stuff and obviously sooner or later we're going to have to have a general election one way or another. Um, what, is it not going to be quite difficult though to be the Conservatives to be seen as the party of law and order when the Prime Minister has been shown to have acted unlawfully? Well, as I say, uh, I mean that that's something that happens a lot. I mean, the you know if you look you know, judicial reviews into you know the actions of, of public bodies, local government, whatever, the, 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 it happens. Um, it is it is a very different thing. I mean, the the, the implication that it's something. Um, Else, I think is is wrong. I mean, the bottom line is the um, the legal advice that the prime minister um, acts upon clearly um, gave him the confidence that he was uh, acting appropriately. The decisions of various you know levels of uh, the judiciary supported that position. Uh, the Supreme Court disagreed with those you know other levels of the judiciary. I say it's disappointing and you deal with it. 
Did you not at least owe the Queen an apology? Do you not think? Considering she was the one that had to uh, give the green light to the prorogation in the first place on on his advice. Well, yeah, the Prime Minister. Uh, I, I'm not privy to conversations that the Prime Minister has with Her Majesty. Nobody is, but the Prime Minister uh, believed that he was um, uh, acting appropriately, um, made the decisions he made, uh, and um, you know the fact that the Supreme Court disagrees with that is say disappointing. But we deal with it. Do you think that the decision after prorogation, in retrospect, was a was a mistake, given everything that's, that's Laid from it. Well, as I say, you, you make decisions. You make decisions based on the facts you have at the time, and um, uh, and you know, I, I completely understand the decision that, that the prime minister made. I mean, the, the the truth is, most of the duration of that prorogation was during what was conference recess, anyway. Mm. Um, and during conference recess, select committees, you know, don't sit. Um, UQs aren't submitted. Um, that you know, for 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 most of this period of this prorogation, uh, in all other years, you know, the, the house would have would have not sat for the three and a bit weeks in in, in practice. Um, so the duration, the the actual difference, and I know this has been discussed. The actual mm. difference in practical terms was, I think, four or five days. I can't remember exactly. You know, about four or five days. But ultimately, I mean, there's no point in there's no point in revisiting that because ultimately the Supreme Court has said that uh, prorogation um, hasn't happened, and so we you know, we come back we 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 leave our we leave our constituency work behind because that's what an awful lot of MPs do during recess. Mm. So the constituency bit of our work gets put to one side, and the Westminster bit of our work gets picked up. So all of this came out while Labour conference was going on in Brighton, uh, now seems years ago. Um, you guys uh, were both there, of course. Um, how did the Supreme Court verdict go down at Labour conference? Because it was sort of uh, smack bang in the middle of um, quite a divisive row about, about Brexit in its own right, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, Adam and I were, were discussing this just before we came on. We were saying that Labour conference actually fell a bit uh, flat this year, generally. Um, and the Supreme Court ruling, we think, may have uh, may have actually had a, a good a good impact on the on the Labour Party conference, sort of maybe saving them from uh, from their internal Brexit divisions. Um, you know, we went in on Saturday with uh, you know before the Labour conference started with this huge row over over Labour's deputy Tom Watson uh, with a fresh sort of boot try to attempt to try and boot him out, um, which obviously went down appallingly well with half the party and incredibly well with the other half of the party, showing Labour again divided over Brexit, again divided over its top team and its future. Um, so it wasn't exactly a great start to Labour conference. Uh, they then went on to have a huge bicker uh, about whether they should back Remain uh, in full uh, or not. Eventually Jeremy Corbyn won the day with another Brexit fudge, um, basically kicking the can down the road for a decision to be made later. Um, but, but absolutely, the, the conference was, was incredibly divided, incredibly split from, from, the, from the start. And the Supreme Court ruling actually sort of take, took the focus away from that and back onto Boris Johnson. So there'll be some people in the Labour Party who were pretty happy about that. So, Adam, as, as Tash mentioned, we had these, these rows over the deputy leadership, which essentially pitched um, John Landsman, founder of the pro-Corbyn Momentum Group, against, against Tom Watson, um, a botched attempt to remove him from office. And then we had the, the, the big, big Brexit row, which essentially is... is been moved into next year at this point or whenever an election comes 
Um, what was the message that Labour wanted to to take to the country at this election? Do you think? Well, I, 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 by the way, I basically completely agree word for word with what Natasha just said about her summary of Labour conference. It was a very strange few days I felt, but um, the message. Well, I guess they did announce a handful of really radical, eye-catching policies. I mean, the ones that are just coming to mind now. Um, the um, making social care for people over 65 free at the point of use, that's obviously a big policy and obviously it takes us back to the last election with Theresa May's infamous social care policy which played a big part in derailing uh, her campaign. The policy to create effectively a state-funded drugs manufacturer which will provide cheaper drugs to the NHS. The four-day week proposal of course, so they had a lot of radical policies so I think just focusing on what they wanted to be um, communicated to the country is that look you saw our 27 manifesto well have a look at this one because this one's even more kind of radical and they, I guess they are kind of presenting themselves as the kind of polar opposite of, of Boris Johnson we are kind of the antithesis to to him but I, I do think that um, it, those policy announcements, though they did get a decent bit of coverage, they were overshadowed by this huge Remain bust-up by the Tom Watson um, episode. And with the Tom Watson thing, what really baffled me was not that there were lots of people in the Labour Party who wanted to get rid of Tom Watson. I mean, that's not a, a revelation, but the timing of it, I thought, even if someone, if you're someone who despises Tom Watson, but you want Labour to win an election mm. and have a positive weekend... And don't do it on the eve of conference, because conference is about policy and it's about unity. And I think both of those things um, got undermined uh, by the attempt to get rid of get rid of Tom Watson. And you, you could see the frustration on the Saturday morning as um, the uh, Shadow Equalities Secretary, Dawn Butler, was out touring the airwaves. And she was there to sell a, a big policy on support for women going through the menopause. Mm. And all anybody could talk about was the Tom Watson row, and there, there was that frustration running through conference. I think that this this self inflicted uh, wound almost had, had taken the oxygen about out of what they wanted to do. Um, Tash, I'm going to throw a difficult question at you. What is Labour's current Brexit policy in in a single crisp sentence? That's a, a million dollar question, and I'm I'm not sure I can answer that in a single sentence, but I'll give it a go. Um, Labour's Brexit policy now is uh, a huge piece of fudge which kicks the decision on whether they will campaign for Remain or for Brexit uh, into the long grass into next year. Uh, essentially, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is in a hugely difficult position. He's got loads of uh, Labour MPs in the North and the Midlands and, and around the country where their constituents voted for Brexit. Uh, he needs to try, or at least <laughs> be seen to try and keep them on side. Um, but then he's got a lot of MPs and most of the members in the Labour Party who voted Remain, want the party to try and overturn the result of the referendum and campaign uh, to, to stay in for good. So this Brexit battle, as we know, has been, it's been going on in the Labour Party since the referendum result in 2016. And effectively, Labour are not hugely uh, any further on than they were before. Um, Labour's policy now is to um, have an election if they get into power. Uh, they will call a second referendum. They will try and negotiate a new Brexit deal with the European Union in a couple of months, and then they will put that to, to, to the people. And later on, they will decide whether to campaign against their own deal or to fight to stay in the EU. 
You still still with me? I'm I'm just about still with you. So that will be thrashed out at this one day special conference Jeremy Corbyn is, is committed to. Um, Adam, do you think eventually Labour is going to end up in a pro-Remain position purely because the membership is overwhelmingly pro-Remain? Yeah, yes, I do think so. And that's why, to me, I'm, to be honest, I'm baffled by this policy because even, I know, I, I speak to people who are close to the Leader's Office and they say that, look, we're going to end up being a Remain party. Well, if that's the case, then just own it. Let's just do it now. Let's just own it because the alternative is being dragged there, kicking and screaming. And by the time you get there, Corbyn and his shadow cabinet won't look sincere. It would just look like an electoral electoral, um, move. Um, And I I do think this policy, although I I completely appreciate this isn't easy uh, for the Labour Party, and I think any leader would, would struggle with this kind of electoral conundrum they've got, but... Um, I think at the next election, whenever that may be, if this is still their position, it's going to be a problem for them because if you can't explain your position on the biggest issue of the day in one snappy sentence, I, th- I, I think that's a problem. And it also does leave the bizarre but very possible scenario of um, Jeremy Corbyn negotiating a deal with the EU, which, by the way, will not be very different to the one Theresa May has negotiated. Withdrawal agreement will be exactly the same and the political declaration which is point to something like a customs union in a single market, but 90% there. Um, and he could then campaign against that deal. And that, to me, just presents all sorts of practical problems for the Labour Party. Um, af- after that big vote, that dramatic vote, I was speaking to, of course, lots of delegates were happy with that result, hence why they voted for it, but I spoke to many really frustrated delegates who were using language I probably can't repeat on on this fantastic podcast and uh and so so you know tempers were actually really running high on um, when, when that vote took place do you, do you think it would be fair to say that what ended up happening was the um the vote on the brexit policy almost became a vote on on jeremy corbyn's leadership this was the motion put forward by the leadership agreed by the nec versus the motion that, that some wings of the membership wanted and that, and that was really how the how the vote went in the end i think that's exactly right when i was speaking to you know, people in the Remain movement who were in town, they were really confident around two o'clock. They thought the unions were going their way and they're going to do this. And then I think it was around four o'clock, the mood just changed completely. And I think what happened, as you said, was the uh, composite, was it 13? The motion 13 vote effectively got turned into a de facto confidence vote in Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And when that dynamic um, took hold, when, when it took effect, um, obviously, pro-Corbyn delegates were really rallied uh, by that, and the motion was defeated. But I mean, going back to what I said just a second ago, I think when it, when election does happen, perhaps if it's in the next few weeks, um, Corbyn is going to be on, on Andrew Marr, on Sky News, on these various TV shows, etc. And he is going to be asked a lot of questions about Brexit because the other, Joss Winston and Boris Johnson, have clear positions and, and he doesn't and he won't be able he'll have much less time to talk about things like the policies they announced at their conference as long as uh, he's being barraged with brexit questions so guys we have just got time for some questions from our listeners um they've been pretty busy this week um first one is from neil mcfarlane 
So this is a really techy question, which I'm sure you'll both be able to answer. I'm going to stay out of it because I don't want to show off how much I know. Um, if Boris ignores the Ben Act and we crash out with no deal on October the 31st, what happens? Would the Supreme Court look at it again? What powers would they have? They couldn't tell the EU to readmit us. What could they do to Boris? So I'm, I'm opening that one so up. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just taking some notes. Uh, well, <laughs> let, let's, let's unpick that question. Firstly, if the United Kingdom leaves the European Union on the October 31st, that's a matter of fact. Um, and, and by the way, that is the current position until, and unless and until the European Union um, approves a UK request to extend Article 50, that's what's going to happen. So that we will have left the European Union. Now, in terms of Boris ignoring, uh, John Sanchez ignoring the law, ignoring the Ben Act, I guess the matter would be swiftly returned to the courts. And if uh, British judges did find the Prime Minister again having broken the law, um, there will be consequences to that, but ultimately a British court couldn't decide that, oh no, we haven't actually left the European Union. That would be a matter, ironically, for, <laughs> for European judges um, who, um, who, who would um, decide that matter, I think. So as far as I, I'm aware, it wouldn't change the legal fact that we, have, we had left the European Union in that scenario. And of course, the Supreme Court ruling we got this week was not about whether or not Britain leaves the European Precisely. Union. It was very specifically focused on this this five week prorogation. So, yeah. so it's important to say that that those two aren't aren't linked in that way. Um, we've got another one from Sean Elvin. Um, so I'm going to throw this one to you, Tash. Summarize Labour conference in just three words. Oh, Sean, that's that's quite difficult. Um, wet. It was very wet. Uh, the weather was was pretty terrible. I'll say that. Uh, flat, I think I already used that word again. Um, uh, I, I don't want to use the word chaos because I use the word chaos quite a lot, but I think it, 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 it still felt chaotic. Maybe I won't use the word chaotic, maybe, I feel, maybe I'll say divided. I like it, I like it. Any, any advance on that, Adam? No, I, I was going to say wet. the weather was absolutely awful. Um, we, had, we, had a be- we had one beautiful day where I thought, oh my God, I'm basically having a four-day holiday by the, you know, by the, med- yeah. in the Mediterranean, and then it was... London on sea. Um, I, I guess I would agree with flat. Uh, up until that Supreme Court ruling, I, I thought that ruling was an absolute godsend for Corbyn because it took attention away from the conference, which is usually the opposite of what you want to happen, and it gave him something to you know unite over. But I felt, yeah, divided is a good word to describe it. Maybe, a, is this a word? Energyless? Is that a word? I'll, yeah, I'll, let's go with I'll it. invent it for this podcast exclusively. Um, I, <laughs> just, I, just, I just felt that um, the party, it didn't feel like the conference of a party which was about to win a general election. It didn't now, even feel like one that wanted to go into a general election, to be quite no. honest. No. And obviously under our electoral system, someone has to win it, and Labour may well stumble into government with the help of others, but... Um, yeah, it didn't have the kind of the the, the energy and the, and the confidence of a party which you know was was going to was going to march into government in a few weeks' time. Um, this is uh, one really about what what we do for a living um, from Edwin Hayward. So Edwin asks, do you think it's time for the media to adopt a voluntary restraint code on reporting comments from anonymous political sources? who use deliberately inflammatory language. I guess this is off the back of the big row that's, that's going on at the moment. He says, tensions are so high that having an unnamed MP going on about things like the surrender bill is only going to exacerbate matters. Tash, would you see an end to inflammatory uh, source quotes or would that do us all out of a job? 
I think let's unpick that question again. When he's talking about time to adopt a voluntary restraint code, I don't like the word restraint code. I don't okay. like the idea that we should be muzzing our, our free press. Um, I do take the point that tensions are running very high. Um, but equally, using anonymous source quotes is sort of a bit of a bread and butter world of politics. We see it all the time. MPs are happy to tell you about their opinions, but a lot of them don't want to go on the record. It would be incredibly difficult if we stopped using off the record source quotes. Um, but equally, I, yeah, I can understand that, yep, uh, it is a really divisive time, and especially if somebody says something that is incredibly inflammatory or divisive or, or uses words like traitor, um, I, I can see that, that that would be difficult. But equally, if an MP is, is saying that, surely the public wants to know that they are saying these things behind closed doors. Adam, what do you make of this? I think, ultimately, it comes down to... I, I definitely don't think we should enforce some kind of rule or some some new code of conduct which you know you, you could be punished for, if you, if you know what I mean. But ultimately, it comes down to personal judgments. When I pick up my phone and I decide whether I should tweet something an MP has sent me, that is a very personal decision of whether I feel... It's it, it's useful to tweet it whether it's um, whether it, you know it's relevant whether I feel like it would actually only add to the kind of toxic atmosphere. Um, I I can think of examples of tweets sent by other journalists or that I personally wouldn't have sent. Um, and I guess, but that's a matter for individual journalists. I I don't think the industry should have some kind of blanket rules um, enforced upon them because uh, I agree that um, source quotes are actually a really important <laughs> part of our job, rightly or wrongly, and often, although they are the source of controversy on Twitter occasionally, they actually do sometimes help you with really great stories and, and can give you substance um, to a story. I think I think most of us would, would also, you know, we would prefer people to put their, put their name to quotes. Sometimes it is the only way you can get a quote, and like Tash says, it is you know, for better or worse, that is the view of people in the governing party at the moment, and therefore we would we would report on that. But um, yeah, absolutely. And what, you know, we've 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 had we've had potentially even in worse things that we've been saying in off off the record comments that I can yeah. that I can recall. Yeah. Really violent images. Yeah. Um, that you know, would you would you want to know if if your MP was saying them or or an, an MP was saying that? I, mm. I think the public should should know when MPs are using this this horrible language because it gives them a chance to call it out. It is a shame that so, so many MPs decide to do things off the record. We would, of course, be really keen to hear your views on everything we've talked about today on the Poll Home podcast. I'm afraid that is all we've got time for, but you can uh, keep on top of everything going on in Westminster politics by signing up to our free seven-day-a-week breakfast briefing at politicshome.com slash register. Thank you so much to Adam Payne and Tash Clark for coming on the podcast today and uh, making it much more lively than it would have been if it was just me sat here talking to myself. We'll see you next week.